0: Workforce Health Engagement, episode 28, Avoiding Workplace Burnout, featuring Bill Holston.
1: Welcome to Workforce Health Engagement, a show exploring strategies to improve your employees' health and productivity and to protect your bottom line. Join us as industry experts discuss how to engage employees in population health management, wellness, and healthcare consumerism. This is a special series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, Engaging Leader. And now, with 20 years of experience as a communication consultant to Fortune 500 companies, helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees, here's your host, Jesse Leahy.
0: Welcome to the show, Engagers. One of the surprising things about workplace burnout is that no one is immune. Even the most engaged, productive, and passionate people can experience burnout. In fact, their dedication may cause them to be even more susceptible than others. In Engaging Leader episode 19, How to Help Your People Have More Great Days at Work, Chris Rice talked about the risk of high-performing people becoming crash and burners. It's one of the challenges of workforce engagement, helping your most engaged people stay engaged. Extended periods of burnout can result in a decline in performance, health problems related to stress and depression, as well as the worst kind of turnover, losing your very best performers. Avoiding burnout in ourselves and in the people we lead requires a proactive strategy. To talk to us about avoiding workplace burnout, we decided not to invite a psychologist or university professor. Instead, we invited someone with real-world experience as a leader and a professional who's been recognized by others for his insights into avoiding burnout. Bill Holston is executive director of the Human Rights Initiative of North Texas. In 2012, Bill left his law practice of 30 years to lead this nonprofit organization that provides pro bono legal services for people who come to the United States seeking asylum from political or religious persecution, abusive relationships, or other reasons. Recently, two professional associations invited Bill to speak about avoiding burnout at their events. I've known Bill for a couple of years now, and based on his wisdom and years of experience, I understand why people are finding his insights helpful. After you listen to our conversation, I think you'll agree. Bill Holston, welcome to the show. Great to see you this morning, Bill. You've been asked to speak to a few groups on the topic of work burnout. What is it about you that that caused people to ask you to come speak with them, and why have you taken an interest in this in this topic?
1: Well, I'll answer the second question first. You know, I was interested, actually, people approached me about it, uh, I guess, first of all, because I was a 32-year practice lawyer who uh, had survived that. And uh, I think people... uh, (laughs) And people who knew me knew that I uh, had a sense of balance in my life while I while I did that. And so they they asked me to talk to a, a panel at the bar association about it. They were motivated by the fact that one of their young lawyers had taken his own life. Oh my God! And uh, and so there was this sense that uh, there were you know pressures on young lawyers that. Um, that they just wanted to talk about as a, as a legal community.
0: And oh, over the course of your career, you have a, a wife and, and a couple of grown kids. What right. What's your personal journey been in the, in the area of, of burnout?
1: Well, you know, I'd say, first of all, that burnout is a serious factor in in law. And I guess it's, and I'm sure that's true in other careers as well. I'm just more familiar with it. And I think one of the reasons is because people go into law for lots of different reasons and sometimes for really bad reasons, Uh, meaning sometimes they go into law because they don't really know what else to do and they think it might be interesting or uh, worse, they think it'll be lucrative. And uh, then they wind up doing things that they don't really enjoy doing. Uh, you know And it just um, it just weighs them down, and particularly if they're in the kind of law practice that requires them to work a lot of hours. So um, I, you know I didn't start out in a law in a high pressure law firm. Uh, got out of law school in 1981, and I started my own law practice doing court-appointed criminal defense work. And so I didn't have that. I had economic pressures on me, but I hadn't didn't have the pressures of institutions that required me to, to work, uh, you know, ungodly amounts of hours. Now I was doing criminal work, so I'd have to get up in the middle of the night and get people <laughs> out of jail. And I had a trial practice, so I was, uh, you know, working weekends. But I always had a sense of balance about that. I, I wanted just because of my, I guess because of my personality, I wanted to enjoy life. Uh, and I viewed life as a broader thing than than my work. And and I, and I have to say, in, in, in addition to that, I never wanted to be defined as, uh, I never defined myself as a lawyer. I defined myself more as a, as a person, as a human being. Um, and uh, that was just what I did for a living.
0: Sp- but as a lawyer, you, I'm sure, went through seasons where you had to work very long hours to meet particular needs, but you've been able to prevent that from sort of taking over your life long-term and creating an extended period of burnout.
1: I guess what I'd say is that um, I didn't let that become a habit of how I, how I worked, um, it's certainly true and the 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 time where that created the greatest pressure was when my children were really young and my wife was a school teacher and she stayed home for our, with our kids for the first couple of years and she would be waiting on the front porch with the kids <laughs> you know and like when are you going to get home and um And so that was difficult you know it was really that was the most difficult time to balance my career with with my responsibilities as a father and a husband and um and sometimes it just uh, it does require a lot uh, particularly a litigation practice although there's other practices uh finance practices mergers and acquisitions that are very very real estate that have a lot of deadlines and a lot of uh, pressures so um uh, yeah, there was periods of time where I was I was putting in some hours. but when the case when the project was over then I didn't continue to put in those kind of hours. I'd say another thing is that my wife and I we made a lot of decisions along the way not to tie ourselves to a lifestyle where we really required um, more money than I could make Uh, because you know loggers are my practice anyway I build by the hour well the only way to make a ton of money billing by the hour is work a ton of hours and um, so if you if you put some balance on that you're you're placing some limitations on on how much money you can make.
0: So in law and in other professions there are different factors that can cause people to get into situations of burnout whether that's uh, desire to work more hours in order to make more money, or uh, it, it's pressure from management. Uh, maybe you have a, a boss or a, a senior management that expects a certain workload. But the and, and we're going to get into some of your the tips that you've shared when you've spoken to uh, bar association groups on this topic. But there's a, another reason would I guess would be just the sense of purpose that you're working for and. I'm sure that's the pressure that you face now as the executive director of a nonprofit. You're leading a team of people that has uh, basically people's lives and freedom are on stake. If you don't come through with them, um, is that a struggle for you?
1: It is. You know, it's really um, it's really interesting. People told me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm moved from. Uh, practicing law to uh, running a nonprofit and people have this perception that working in the nonprofit is actually a way to slow down <laughs> And people would ask me, so is this basically retirement for you And I said, well, I actually expect to work harder now than I was working in my law practice and it's been true. <laughs> um, and, I, the, and and there is more of a temptation. Because now, you know, when I was practicing law, I wasn't working my passion. I liked practicing law. I liked my clients. There was a lot of uh, intellectual challenge to it. I, it was, I didn't love it, you know. But working with refugees, working with uh, people seeking asylum, and children fleeing gang violence, I love that work. And so uh, it's easy. It's, hard, it's a little more challenging, actually, to place limits um, in my life. Um, And then I'd say the other challenging part of that is it's not everything. I don't love everything I do. You know, I mean, I got here at, at uh, you know, seven this morning and did my online banking and I'm trying to line up, uh, you know, uh, credit card receipts with uh, with <laughs> transactions. Well, I don't, you know, I'm sure some of the listeners love that, but I, I'm not <laughs> one of those people. And uh, so I have to really be purposeful about balancing the tasks that really don't give me energy with tasks that do give me energy. Yeah. That's
0: your question. It does. And that I think uh, all of our listeners can relate to those types of um, pressures, whether it's how much time you're spending working in areas that don't really line up with your passions and, or, and just that need that, gosh, if I don't do this, who's going to do it? And when you really care about the purpose of the organization um, and the, the customers or whoever you're serving – it's difficult to know when to draw the line. You you feel um, that you're not exp- expendable. That uh, if if I'm not here, this isn't going to get done, and bad things are going to happen.
1: Right. You know. A- another thing I was um, thinking about is one of the, one of the ways that I stayed engaged as a lawyer for 32 years is that I did this work pro bono. So I was always balancing. Um, and I, not always but for about 20 plus years of my 32-year practice i balanced my business practice with representing uh, asylum seekers and that that uh that actually fed my soul so i could do lots of work that wasn't particularly soul satisfying um, but it, but I'm, I was balancing it with stuff that t- completely was. And that's an advantage that a law as a profession has over other uh, – I, I was really thinking about that uh, when I was thinking about talking to you this morning and thinking that it was much more challenging for other people whose careers might not really present that uh, – professions might not present that opportunity to use those skills, um, uh, y- you know, in a way that's real soul-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. But law law permits you to do that. So law is
0: a particularly tough area when it comes to burnout, Um, and you've you've mentioned that that suicide is one uh, thing that happens a lot more in in law than in in a lot of other professions.
1: Yeah, there's studies that say uh, they compare uh, suicide rates and depression. Uh, The American uh, Psychological Association identifies uh, that lawyers are 3.6 times more likely to suffer from depression than non-lawyers. There's uh, uh, abuse of uh, uh, alcohol and drugs are are really a problem in in, uh, law. Uh, because, and, I, and, I, and I'm not certain, I don't know all the answers to that, of why that is. Uh, I mentioned one of them earlier, which is I think a lot of people go into law with one notion of what it's going to be like, and then it's completely different from that. Um, and then the other is it's very, very deadline oriented. And so <coughs> there's a lot of pressure um, to... Um, there's, there are constant pressures and particularly if you have a litigation practice you have so many deadlines and they're moving targets and um, and they're subject to so many outside pressures availability of witnesses and your clients ability to pay um, and so it's a it, it, it's it's it can be a pretty exhausting way to make a living
0: and yet a lot of other I mean there are other professions that have similar Pressure issues. Uh, l- lawyers rank fourth, as you've pointed out, uh, compared to other professions in terms of number of suicides, and they're actually behind dentists and pharmacists and physicians, which I think would surprise a lot of people.
1: Yeah, because you think that the the notion is in our workforce that that's the home run. You get one of those professional jobs, and this is your you know license to print money, and you've got it made. And you know, uh, there's uh, there's an element of truth to that, and you know, people make good livings in these professions. Um, but uh, but on the other hand, there's as we all know, money really does not make you happy. And if it's uh, if what you have to do to make that money is something that's not soul satisfying for you, uh, it's high pressure, um, then um, you know, then you're you're not content with your life. And um, and then and then I don't think it makes it even worse that you you're in a position where other people think you, you should be happy, but you actually aren't.
0: So I think a lot of our listeners, even if you're not a, a doctor or a dentist or a pharmacist or a lawyer, uh, we most of our listeners are in professions that are experience similar pressures in terms of deadlines. And we've got we lead teams of professionals as well. So basically, anybody in the in the knowledge uh, economy, not any knowledge workers, are going to have some of these pressures that can lead to burnout. Can you tell us a little bit about how you define burnout and what causes it?
1: Sure. Um, the American Psychological um, Association's uh, David Ballard is. Um, a, a, a psychologist describes job burnout as an extended period of time where somebody experiences exhaustion, lack of interest in things, and resulting in a decline of uh, job performance. Um, so that's a, that's a long-winded way of saying that it's when uh, your psychological state that gets you to the point where you really can't perform in your job any longer.
0: And I, a lot of us, you're gonna ha- when you go through a period of working hard, you're going to have a, a period where you're tired and maybe even exhausted. But I guess the, the key word there is extended. If you've got an extended period of time, now we're talking about a potentially dangerous situation.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, as you pointed out, we we all have periods of time. I mean, maybe you're a, a in a sales force, and your big season is the holiday season. So you know, for you know that, for, or you're an auditor, and so around tax time, you're going to be putting in a lot of hours, and uh, um, and it's just going to be hard. And then you decide, then you go on a vacation, you know, and, and th- those things happen. All of our every career has got that. Um, possibility. What we're talking about is, is a is work habits that extend over a period, a long period of time, and ultimately lead to your um, inability to cope any longer.
0: Now, tell us a little about a little bit about compassion fatigue.
1: The, um, the, there's a lot of different professions that see this. Uh, we see it, of course, in the, human rights work, in the human rights field, but any, you know, social workers or uh, another group of people that experience this, um, psychologists, others, it's people who hear other people's stories all the time. You know, we as a society experience a little bit of that collectively when we hear, you know, sad stories over and over and over. But, you know, if that's your job, every single day you're talking to children that are escaping uh, domestic violence or sexual abuse or both or uh, escaping violence and in, in, uh, in a country that's you know unrelenting rapes all of these terrible things torture uh, you hear those uh, details every single day then eventually um, you start experiencing that you will it it can manifest itself in a couple different ways either you lose sensitivity where you hear these things you don't even care anymore because you've just heard it so often or you suffer you can even suffer secondary post-traumatic stress because you start feeling the uh, pain of other people and uh it, and then, you, you know, you manifest it the same way that people, have under, that you know, if you're hearing torture stories all the time, then you can actually start emotionally experiencing the same things that torture survivors have, that have uh, experienced. Hmm.
0: And one of the things that I know you've talked about is being aware of the warning signs of burnout. And I, th- I think it's important to spot these in ourselves, but... Also, as a leader of people, I guess it's even more important because people aren't going to come up and tell their supervisor, hey, I'm, I'm running into burnout. That, that's a rare kind of conversation. So as a leader, if we can spot some of these warning signs, I think that's, we, can, we can step in and help some of our best performers continue to be great performers.
1: One of the one of the things I'll say is that we do some. Uh, we use our staff meetings. We have weekly staff meetings. We'll have people. Uh, we've had psychologists come in and talk to our staff about uh, burnout and for and what we call self-care, uh, which is what it sounds like. And um, uh, and so we spend some energy just educating people uh, on the necessity for the for their. Them taking responsibility for uh, taking care of themselves and then being willing to go to their supervisor and talk about it. But in addition to that, you're right. We we who are the leaders uh, need to be conscious of that and watching for that. And uh, and I think honestly, it's even more tempting in the nonprofit world. Um, you know, my young staff. I have a young staff here. Some of them these are their first professional jobs and they love this work they're they're definitely not doing it for the money and so they're only they're just mission driven and i i really have to pay attention to um, how long they're working whether they're working through lunches whether they're skipping meals uh then whether they're getting sick you know getting sick a lot Um, And then just watching their demeanor, whether they look sad and, you know, I I have the good fortune of, or at least uh, 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 advantage of having a pretty small staff. There's 11 of us. So it's a little easier for me to stay in touch personally with people but I constantly walk around this office and I'm not just in my office I'm walking up and and talking to people seeing how they're doing uh, and then sometimes they'll tell me yeah this is a rough day I just had to I just heard this little girl describe some really terrible thing that happened to her and it just made me sad and um, and then I walk around I'm the first one in and but I'm not always the last one to leave because of my own efforts to have a healthy work-life balance and I'm if I have young staff still here I'm like okay are you about done are you uh, are you you know you need to go home this is going to be here tomorrow and um, and that's really two things. one is I try to model good behavior um, and second, I don't want to ever, uh, communicate, but the expectation. And I think this is actually a big problem in nonprofits. I think a lot of nonprofits, that, you know, nobody wants to leave before the boss, and the boss is working, you know, as a workaholic, and, and looking looking over his glasses at you if you're you're leaving before him at six o'clock. And uh, I, I don't, I, I want to not do that.
0: That's a problem in for-profit companies too. I I definitely. I Let's just say I never had a boss that encouraged me to leave at a healthy time. It, it was always the, the exact pressure you're talking about. So I definitely commend you for keeping a healthier attitude and encouraging your, your younger associates to set good patterns early in their career.
1: Yeah, I just I want them to... Um... I, I, I don't know. I view it as a I guess I'm a good bit older than, than them and I and I feel very um, I guess I wanna say paternal without being paternalistic. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, but I do I have a lot of paternal feelings for them and, and I remember I remember having a um, having a young woman uh, qu- right after I started this job, she she resigned to take another job, and she, she was really cheerful. And I think she felt bad about quitting. And I looked, and I remember going through my mind, okay, I want to react the way I hope somebody would react to my daughter when they were quitting their job, you know.
0: Yeah. Now um, you've listed several warning signs, but there were two that I think I found somewhat surprising at, at first. Being afraid to take a day off and never taking a vacation, if if you see people on your team showing those symptoms, why, why should you be worried about that?
1: Well, because you can't you can't sustain this type of work every single day, five days a week, you know, fifty two weeks a year and with and you are, you are going to experience burnout if you do that. Um, you, you have to unplug from this work. And, um, it, you know, we have a pretty, um, you know, our employees have 17 days of PTO here. And I encourage them to take it. Uh, we track it. And if they haven't taken it by some point in the year, well, number one, I never say no to people who want to take a day off. So whatever the reason, I'm like, great, you need a break, take it. Um, and then second, I tell people, I, I really um, almost criticize them, look, you didn't take enough time off this year, you know, you, you need to take care of yourself, and you have 17 days, you took off eight days, you need to do better next year, and um, And I know that feels a little counterintuitive, but I want people to be in this for the long haul and not just not just here. You know, I want them to be in this work for the long haul. So, you know, it's it's my goal is not for somebody uh, to work here until they're used up and then they're done. Um, you know, I see that in a lot of professions. My wife's a teacher. We see that, you see that in education a lot. You know, teachers who are, the the demands on them are so um, extraordinary that they don't just leave that job, they leave their career. And I don't, I don't want to see that happen.
0: Absolutely. So what are some things that we can do in in our own lives to avoid burnout as well as uh, teach the people that work with us?
1: Well, I'd say, um, first of all, some of these things are very um, straightforward and, and kind of com- commonsensical. And I, I guess the first word I'd use would be balance. Have a sense of balance in your life. And also um, it, it take care of yourself in every area your, your uh, physical self, your. Um, uh, psychological self, your emotional self, and your spiritual self. Um, so, you know, find things. I mentioned earlier. You know, don't be defined by your job. Have interests that are. Uh, you, you know, I have to. I have to kind of discipline myself. I'm a big reader. I love reading, and I like educating myself. I read lots of management books, lots of leadership books, and sometimes I just read a, a novel. Um, or a work of literature, just to kind of take a break from uh, all of that. um, um. Physical self-care, people that, you know, we should pay attention to our diet. I mean, the one – and actually, that's a place I've really grown in my own uh, uh, self-care. I definitely was somebody who used to just work straight through lunch and grab the last uh, breakfast taco off of the desk (laughs) at, uh, you know, four in the afternoon and keep on working. And that's, you know, that's a really good way to – to wind up in an emergency room someday, <laughs> um, so uh, you know, going doing your annual physicals and uh, taking care of your going to the dentist, uh, you know, just your just taking care of your body uh, is part of that. Um, the, the the for for me, I'd say the number one way I've, I've uh, Avoided burnout is having interests that were completely unrelated to um, to my job and those in uh, and, and in particular uh, getting out in nature uh, That's 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 probably the number one factor in me staying healthy is spending a lot of time in the out of and um, and then I'm a I'm a Um, I think you introduced the word ambivert to me. I always thought of myself (laughs) as an introvert, Um, but I'm pretty comfortable with people, but I absolutely require a lot of solitude. And so my Sunday afternoon walks in the woods are, um, I'm, I'm religious about taking those.
0: It's interesting. When I was younger in my career, the of some of the different ideas that you've expressed the the one that i was uh it was i sort of first had to learn was investing in sleep i think it took me a whole decade to prove to myself that it was worth it it was a good investment to just get a full night of sleep uh every night if if at all possible that um, shortening, just shortening, shortening my sleep by just an hour or two and sometimes working through the night like I used to um, was not going to get me where I wanted to go in the long run.
1: No, as a matter of fact, when the panel discussion I was on where it was a psychologist was on the panel, that was the number one uh, thing that he said about self-care was making sure you got enough sleep. You know, there's a reason why torturers use sleep deprivation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it really puts you in not a good psychological state.
0: Yeah, the the one the so I finally did learn that lesson that, I mean, I, I'm, Stay true to that the the one the lesson the other tip that you talked about is nutrition and diet e- eating healthy. I have to i'm I don't think I've fully persuaded myself because I seem to keep having to relearn that, but that when I don't eat right, it it has a big impact on my energy and my day to day motivation and and uh, and engagement. and I'm much more likely to have a a than let's say I've been eating a lot of sugar, for example. Uh, I'm much more likely to have a period of high work intensity actually turn into an exhaustion and uh, borderline burnout.
1: Yeah, I think the reason we fall into those habits is because it really takes some discipline. It takes a lot more effort to eat healthy. I mean, it actually isn't easy. People might say it's easy, but it's actually not. It takes more planning to have a healthy lunch than it does to say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run next door and get a burger you know, Mm -hmm. than it is to have prepared uh, a salad or something uh, healthy to eat uh, at your desk. Um, Or when you go out, you know, there's we have great Tex-Mex restaurants, lots of Mexican restaurants here, and I love the food, but, uh, you know, it's not healthy to eat every day, or most of it's (laughs) not. Um, So, you know, it's just, it requires, actually for me, uh, I... um, My wife takes care of her uh, 79-year-old mother, so I picked up the responsibility for doing most of our shopping and cooking uh, for she and I, and so I I do a lot of cooking on the weekend, and over time I've gotten to where I enjoy it, Um, and I cook lots of—I grill tons of vegetables. And that's what I take for lunch. So I've I've kind of made it by putting in some energy over the weekend. I wind up having healthy food I can eat uh, during the week. And I'm less tempted to just, and I, you know, it's, and by doing that, it's been years since I've been to a fast food restaurant. Hmm.
0: Fantastic. You mentioned having some other things that you're excited about so that you have greater balance and it helps keep your work in perspective, uh, so for you, that's getting out into nature. For me, it's doing triathlons um, and uh, involved with some theater uh, activities with my with my kids. I guess it's that topic seems much more natural to me now that my kids are older. And probably for you, it seems really difficult for people with young kids. I mean, you basically you've got work and you've got your parenting duties, and there there doesn't seem like there's a a lot of Unplugging in anywhere in between. Do you have you been able to give any advice to younger workers that have? Been, I wouldn't have say
1: it was advice. It's more <laughs> comfort. You know, people that I know that have small children, I've said, "Look, you just need to lighten up on yourself. You are in the most difficult stage of life there is, and I'm not going to sugarcoat that. <laughs> you know, the demands are just constant and." Um, your kids don't care if you're tired when you get home at seven o'clock at night, you know, they want you to read a book. And, um, so I guess I'd say a couple things. Uh, one is I, um, my wife and I on our weekends, we, we spent lots of time in the out with our kids. You know, we camped a lot. We, we, um, you know, if I wasn't at work on a Saturday, we we were going to a local nature center and hiking or we were going to a local state park and going for walks. Uh, so I, I tried really hard to um, sometimes to their chagrin. Uh, get them to do the things I, I enjoyed doing you know but it really is you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie It's a, it's a tough and, I, and, I, and I've had younger people sometimes like god Bill I love the fact that you you know journal and you go hiking man I just can't do it and I'm like yeah you know I would not doing a ton of that when I had an eight-year-old you know
0: yeah, and even uh, probably as you said lighten up on yourself. I think that even that lighten up on yourself in some of the areas that we are sort of take as a given that you ha- that you ought to be doing. Uh some of the ought to's in just in terms of whether it's parenting or work. Um what you may need to let your house not be super clean. So what? Uh I don't most most kids they grow up they don't So you seen, <laughs> so seen my house. So you seen my house,
1: just yeah.
0: <laughs> but most of us, uh, if, if we have any criticisms of our parents, it's not that uh, they just didn't keep the house clean enough <laughs> or they didn't right. make enough money. Uh, it, it's Those aren't really the things that, that we remember from our childhoods. We, we tend to remember whether our parents uh, cared about us, that they did things with us, and how did our mom and dad uh, act toward each other.
1: Yeah, I think... Um... I don't know. I feel like that's a place where the baby boomers, uh, my generation, have not done well. I think we really upped the um, pressure on ourselves to have our kids involved in all sorts of structured activities and, you know, teams. You know, um, when I was a kid, team sports were uh, fun, (laughs) you know, they weren't, they weren't, and they weren't very organized. And uh, people have just filled their lives with really pretty astonishingly difficult schedules. You know, they're almost impossible to keep up with. Now, talk to us about boundaries. Well, that's particularly um, important in, in the nonprofit world. You know, you can really start owning your client's bad decisions. And that can just eat you up. And you can start, um, you know, it's really important, for instance, for us to think, okay, we're lawyers, we're not social workers, you know, our clients have all kinds of social service needs. And we're not responsible for every single one of them. Our job is to, you know represent them in their legal case. And we have a social service director and to the best we can, we help them to uh, you know, uh, access the limited social services that are available for uh, people seeking asylum, for instance. But, you know you don't take it on yourself like okay I'm gonna take I'm, now I'm gonna start taking you to the grocery store every day mm-hmm. or yeah here's my cell phone number call me anytime you need me or um, you, you know the, the, that then you that is a that is a blueprint for losing your life
0: <laughs> Yeah I am a volunteer counselor at a local nonprofit and when you tell a story like that, it's, it's easy to think of, oh, that, that would just be some kind of overachieving person that would do that for those clients. But um, it it, it, happen, it sort of sneaks up on you. And a lot of those clients really do ask you to do things like that. And um, it's difficult to, put, to recognize where the boundaries are and where the, the client is, is maybe encouraging you to step over.
1: You know I, I, the way i've always looked at this is this is a this is akin to what the airlines tell you if you're a parent with a baby and you get on a plane they say okay if we lose uh, uh oxygen you put your mask on first and then you take care of your baby and i look at it like that if you're not taking care of yourself if you're not setting appropriate boundaries you're not going to be you're not going to be able to continue to help care for other people. You're you're not, and you're not going to survive.
0: And this, I think, is applicable in the for-profit world, too, in terms of uh, whether it's customers and and how you're serving customers. You you certainly want to go the extra mile for your customers, but you do have to have some personal boundaries. Also, colleagues who need help uh, solving their problems, whether it's work problems or their personal problems, and even if you've got a boss that's that's uh, depending on what the what the requests are for you, you may need to have some clear boundaries, and some of those boundaries may not make your boss happy in the in the short term. But I think it again, that's an area where you're investing in something that's going to make you a long term high performer.
1: Yeah, you know, I feel like the way that this actually is manifesting itself now in the twenty first century is is mainly electronic. You know, the, uh, the people being uh, tethered to their smartphones and they're now available 24-7 to their customers. And we're actually um, training people to have that expectation that their email is going to be responded to in two minutes or their problem is going to be addressed. And, you know, we've completely altered our expectations of what we expect from other people. Um you this is a this is probably controversial but just one thing that I did when I moved into the nonprofit world is I gave up my data plan on my smartphone and I just use it with Wi-Fi now and so I'm not I'm not available 24/7 so I'm out in the nature area you know send me an email I'm not gonna get it <laughs> But I used to, when I, when I was in private practice, I carried a Blackberry around and I'm sitting in the shade of an oak tree, sending an email to some you know, bank in Georgia, and that was stupid.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to say I never do that sort of thing, but I do. Uh, yeah. But,
1: but still, it really eats us up. It really It does. totally eats us up. And, yeah. we've, and it's become, um, it, we just assume that's how we should live life. And we don't have to. I haven't missed it, you know, and I'm plenty accessible. I mean, people, I have a cell phone. People can call me if there's an emergency and I check my emails every several hours, you know, but, you know, most of us, most of us just aren't that important or we need to be available all that time.
0: Right, right. So turn off those automatic notifications and uh, break yourself free from the addiction to your smartphone. It's the world is going to make it for a few hours uh, in between times of you checking your email.
1: <laughs> you know, because here's an example. When I when I first started practicing law, you know, I, I take uh, uh, and I didn't take enough vacations early in my practice because uh, you know when you're living by the billable hour, you're there is a pressure to work. Uh, you know, but when I took them, I, I, I would go backpacking with some buddies in a national park. Well, I'd leave my office and I'd tell my secretary, "Hey, if you need to reach me, I don't know how you'd do it." <laughs> and uh, I guess you could call the rangers and leave a message there at the <laughs> ranger station. Well, now, you know, you've you've actually got to be disciplined to be unplugged. You've got to tell people you put your out-of-office message on your uh, email and say. I'm not, you know, I'm going to have limited access to email, and then don't. Uh, And because you, I don't know, I guess maybe uh, people are wired differently. But for me, if I go on vacation and I'm spending a lot of time checking my email and uh, talking to people, I'm not unplugged and I'm not relaxing. And I might as well just be back at the office making money. Bill, any other final tips that you have to avoid burnout? One thing I mentioned earlier, but expand on it a second, is spiritual self-care. You know, mm-hmm. we, I believe that all of us are spiritual beings, and I, I'm really disciplined about starting my day in reflection. And for me, uh, in the Christian tradition, I, you know, I read a psalm. I, I'm a um, committed journaler. I write in my journal every morning. I reflect on the things that were positive or not so positive the day before, challenges I have the, this day, and, um, and, then, I, and then, I, um, then I pray a really simple prayer, and I do it every day, which is that I would lead with integrity, skill, wisdom, clarity, courage, and humility, and I try to hit those principles in mind as I go through the day. And so, you know, if you don't start your day with some solitude and reflection and you just start your day in a frantic way, it's not going to get calmer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good point. So sort of leading from that moment of quiet uh, helps you begin the day with a, a greater sense of perspective and uh, and begin from a, a moment of of balance and, and peace and you probably have a, a more strategic more focused approach to your overall day
1: right and you know in people who aren't uh, religious or particularly spiritual they can they can achieve the same sort of things with meditation or just reflection or journaling things to just uh, just a moment of quiet to um, um, just give them a sense of perspective
0: yeah absolutely I agree with that Bill Holston is Executive Director of the Human Rights Initiative of North Texas. Bill, thanks for joining us on Workforce Health Engagement. Great. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. Be sure to check out more about the great organization that Bill leads, the Human Rights Initiative of Northern Texas. You can find that online at hrionline.org, and we'll put the uh, information about that on our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash W-H-E-2-8, as in Workforce Health Engagement, episode 28. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with midsize and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, JJ Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Terrence, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of each opportunity to engage the people we care about.